Now, Thomas often gets a bit of a bad reputation amongst the 12 disciples. In that rabble of Jesus's 12, his closest friends, most are given nicknames or titles, some of which wouldn't sound out of place at like a WWE wrestling match. Uh, You get uh, James and John, the sons of thunder. You get, can you smell what Simon Peter, a.k.a. Cephas, a.k.a. The Rock, is cooking? Does anyone know what I mean when I say, can you smell what The Rock is cooking? Okay, one or two people. I don't know whether that shows my age or yours. Um, You get Simon, the zealot, Matthew, the tax collector. And even those that don't sound like wrestlers are given pretty neutral identifiers and nicknames. You have James, the son of Alphaeus. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, the son of John. Jude and Orthadius, they can't make their mind up. And of course, in John's gospel, you get the finest title of all, which goes to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is probably John himself, a very humble guy. Even Judas doesn't necessarily get a bad nickname. He's just Judas Iscariot, part of the family of Iscariot. But Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, we don't know who's twin, we often dub as Doubting Thomas, the one who wouldn't believe. And so built into the Easter story, the resurrection story, is this tension between doubt and faith. What a comfort that is. Because there have been many times in my own life, and I'm pretty sure on every Christian journey, when faith seems hard to come by, when belief itself feels like a struggle, And unfortunately, Christians have developed a nasty habit of hiding their doubts by acting as though others shouldn't have any doubts of their own. I like the theologian Stanley Hauvas gave this little tongue twister to it. We try to assure ourselves that we really believe what we say we believe by convincing those who do not believe what we believe that they really believe what we believe once what we believe is properly explained. As this passage from John shows us, Easter is as much an occasion for doubt as it is for faith. God is not afraid of or deterred by doubt or unbelief. Vix mentioned that song that we sang at the Live at 10, My Lighthouse. It's my daughter's favorite song. In my wrestling and in my doubts, you won't walk out. God is not afraid of doubt. Perhaps doubting Didymus is a good wrestler's name after all then, because this is someone who wrestles with faith, who wrestles with God, who wrestles with believing that there are times when the gospel story does indeed seem too good to be true. And this morning I want to say that having faith is not the same as not having doubt. Having faith does not mean not having doubt. John tells us that on this first Easter, Thomas, one of the 12, wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to his group of followers. Perhaps Thomas's grief at the loss of his beloved rabbi was too great to be, too great for him to be around his other disciples in the aftermath of Jesus's death. Or was this doubting Didymus still running in fear? After all, the prospect of Jesus's death struck such fear into the hearts of his followers that all of the 12, bar one of them, and a small group of women ran away when Jesus was executed. They weren't there. 
Thomas gets a bad rep. But the majority of Jesus' closest friends had abandoned their beloved friend in his greatest hour of need. So perhaps doubting Didymus was riddled with guilt and shame. Or maybe he was embarrassed that the one he thought was the one, the one who would come and save all people, was then strung up to die as an accursed criminal. Perhaps Thomas was angry that Jesus wasn't what he expected him to be, that Jesus had somehow let him down by dying on the cross. Whatever the reason for Thomas's absence that first Easter Sunday, Jesus is clearly determined to leave no stone unturned. After first appearing to Mary in the passages just before the one we read, making her the first preacher of the gospel, then to a larger group of his followers, he returns to grant, doubting Didymus, his wish to see and to put his finger in the marks where the nails had been and his hand into his side where the centurion's spear had been thrust. Thomas's doubt isn't trivial, nor is it a kind of trendy disaffection or deconstruction, nor is it about persecution or perennial challenges to faith. His doubt is the kind that emerges from the rubble of faith. His doubt emerges in the midst of his faith. In fact, given that we're in John's gospel, John doesn't talk so much about faith or not having faith. He talks about belief and unbelief. So doubt perhaps isn't the best word to describe Thomas after all. A better word from John is unbelief at the heart of belief. Doubt at the heart of faith. It was church. It isn't supposed to happen in church. These are the words of Jerry Kearns, who is delivering flowers in Piedmont, Alabama, one fateful day in 1994. It was Palm Sunday, no less. The Sunday before Easter Sunday, so the United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Alabama, was filled with 140 people when a tornado ripped through the building, killing 20 people, including six children. One onlooker at this event noted that the worst thing that he saw was the tiny little patent leather shoes, the new Easter shoes that had been bought for, especially for church, scattered around the ruins. And he said, if that doesn't shake your faith, nothing will. Another onlooker, 23-year-old Robin Tucker asked, we are trained from birth not to question God, but why? Why a church? Why those little children? Why, why, why? A New York Times journalist concluded that the situation had not turned the people against God, but, he wrote, it has hurt them in a place usually safe from hurt, like a bruise on the soul. And the minister of the church, the Reverend Kelly Clem, lost her four-year-old daughter, Hannah, in this destruction. Still covered in bruises and fighting back tears, she said, this might shake people's faith for a long time. I think that is normal. It's normal. But having your faith shaken is not the same 
as losing it. This bereft mother said that to have doubt arising in the midst of one's faith in the face of suffering is normal. It's completely normal. And Thomas, another one who had a bruised soul, note the sign that he demands of Jesus here. He doesn't ask for Jesus to be revealed in glory, to come gleaming in light and white robes on a stallion. These are not the proofs that he asks for. The proofs that Thomas asks for are the signs of Jesus' suffering. The marks left on his body by the brutal torture and execution of crucifixion. Fleming Rutledge writes that where faith takes its stand, where faith takes its stand is not in the place of clarity and certainty, but in the place of ambiguity and pain. Faith is not fired, forged in the fires of conviction. Faith is forged in the fires of enigmatic pain and suffering. Like Robin Tucker, Thomas is asking the question, why? Why? Why the cross? Why should we direct our faith towards a dead man? Why? But, John tells us, the following week, Thomas has rejoined his friends. Perhaps he's come to see if they've all gone mad. Because they're all saying, Jesus has come back. He's returned. I love this line that it says, even though the doors were shut, even though the doors were locked, even though they were locked up in a house, Jesus came and stood amongst them. Jesus appeared amongst them. For there is nothing that will keep the risen Jesus the good shepherd, from finding his own. There is nothing that will keep this good shepherd from going after that one, even when they are hidden away, locked up. As the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle on the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me. There is nothing that will keep this good shepherd from finding his own. And it's not that Jesus' resurrected body is somehow less than physical, that he's able to just appear in a room or move through a locked door or a wall. It's not that he's lacking some kind of physicality that gives him the ability to do this. It's that his resurrected body is more than just physical. It's more real than anything else. The risen Jesus is the most real thing in this world, in your life. It is so real, it's no longer limited by time or space, but has transcended them. Jesus is physically present in ways we cannot comprehend. In a moment, we'll share communion. That's just one of those ways where Jesus is physically present to us in ways that we do not understand. But this is what Jesus has called us to do. And what does Jesus say to his disciples when he appears amongst them? Remember that these are his friends, his closest friends that had abandoned him. Surely he would appear amongst them to condemn them 
But instead of saying something like, I was naked and you were not there to clothe me. I was thirsty and you had already run too far away to give me something to drink. Instead of saying, I was a prisoner and far from visiting me, you stood in the crowd and acted like you didn't know me. I was hungry for justice and wretched upon a cross, and yet I remained a stranger to you. Instead of saying these things, Jesus says with his trademark aplomb, peace be with you. The Prince of Peace has arrived. Peace be with you. His message is the Hebrew shalom. Shalom is more than just equilibrium or maintaining balance. Shalom means nothing less than peace with God himself, peace with your neighbor, peace with yourself, your uncertain future, and your sordid past. Peace be with you. And then he turns to our friend Thomas, doubting Didymus. When other people demanded signs from Jesus, signs and wonders, we're accustomed to Jesus turning them down or walking away or just not saying anything. But astonishingly here, this is one of the few times that Jesus grants this request for a sign. He says to Thomas, go on then, look, see, touch the marks of my suffering for you. Do not doubt, but believe. Interpreters generally agree, contrary to how this is normally depicted. I think there's a famous Caravaggio painting where Thomas has got his finger halfway into Jesus' side. Contrary to that, interpreters of the Bible generally agree that Thomas doesn't actually touch Jesus at this point. Because Jesus' word alone is enough. Jesus' word alone is enough to bring creation out of nothingness. His word alone enough is to bring Lazarus forth from the tomb. Jesus' word alone enough is to bring faith from the midst of doubt. Where there was doubt in the midst of faith, Jesus can bring faith in the midst of doubt. Jesus' word alone is enough for Thomas to seeing him, hearing him. Hearing his word, utter the gospel confession, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This is the first and only time where anyone in the Bible directly refers to Jesus as the creator God of Israel. My Lord and my God. What grace it is that Jesus should gift to this doubting Thomas, this faith kindling revelation in the midst of his doubt. What grace it is that Jesus should give to Thomas this faith in the midst of doubt, this belief in the midst of unbelief. None of us here will have seen the risen Jesus in the same way that Thomas did. And yet our faith, like Thomas's, is equally founded on the living word of God alone. We are the subject of Jesus' statement, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. In this, we have a choice. We have a choice to make. 
Do not see and yet believe. We have a choice. We can choose to believe in a God who suits us and our needs and our desires. A God who, as Sigmund Freud put it, is really no more than a projection of our own desires. A God that is essentially a domesticated house pet. We can absolve these man-made gods and goddesses of the problems of the world. The pain, the suffering, the tornadoes, the wars, and the wickedness. Because they are just a part of the world. They are not the makers of it. But the Bible presents us with another choice. A God who is as much baffling and infuriating as he is alluring and attractive. A God who welcomes our doubt and our unbelief. Who allows us to shake our fists and scream at him. A God who is not aloof, who is not distant from our pain and suffering, but enters fully into it. A God who answers our questioning, why, 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 with none other than his one and only Son. The Gospel of Mark tells the story of Jesus' encounter with a father and his sick son. And Jesus says to this father, all things can be done for the one who believes. To which the father responds by crying out, and this is my favorite bit of scripture, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. In a moment, we'll share communion together. But let's just take a moment of quiet now to remember the faith that Jesus gave to doubting Didymus, the faith that he kindles in us, and to celebrate by praying these words from Mark's gospel as well. I believe. Help my unbelief.